Um, What's his stance on Army Hammer? Well, this one article I read reckons he had a really good relationship with him, but maybe it was um, potentially... Because Army never tried to eat him. Not- <laughs> Welcome to Psychocinematic, the podcast where we analyse depictions of mental illness and disability in popular film and TV. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this place and acknowledge that this was and always will be Aboriginal land. We respect all Elders and Ancestors and any First Nations people listening here today. Michael Watson, welcome back to the podcast. Hi Stephanie Fornasia, how are you going? It's Fornasia. How are you? What's been happening? What's been happening in your world? International Women's Day. Yes, yes. Do you, are you yesterday. on board? Are you on board with IWD? I am not the person to speak about this, but um, other people to speak about it are all over the internet, including Clementine Ford, who we saw yesterday at the library. At the Clock Tower Centre, Mooney Ponds. It was great. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a good sentiment, but often workplaces go, oh, it's International Women's Day, we should care about women, and then they never do anything actually about it mm. um and my workplace I won't tell you what it is didn't do anything oh. so what's worse i'm not sure maybe they just do a little bit of caring about women just a little bit would be every nice every of the week <laughs> or maybe they are you know such feminists that they're like i don't want this tokenistic day i don't even want to acknowledge it i doubt that that's the case though I maybe they just forgot maybe they don't celebrate it because there's no international men's day you know what there actually is? That was just a joke, everybody. Give us an update on Psycho Cinematic. Oh, we've been, like, going great guns lately. Mm. Had some really amazing guest hosts. Sorry, Michael, that your your spot keeps getting filled, but you are a busy man these days. I'm busy and I don't have quite the same pull as people with lived experience. You have lived experience, but just not enough. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's been really good to branch out and have some really amazing people on the pod. Mm. And we're getting a little bit of traction, which is nice. Good pods? Good pods. Number one? Very easy to use app that I quite like. It's like a social media app for podcasts. I'm doing maths recaps still, Married at First Sight recaps. Yeah, it's a, a, a plague on our household. It actually is because we have had little time to spend with each other while I watch and <laughs> make stories. <laughs> and... Uh, sister of the pod and guest host Maz has been staying with us and she was like filming me sitting on our son's couch while I watch <laughs> <laughs> Married at First Sight and looks so bad. It's a good couch. I sit it's on really it all comfy. the time. I sit on it more than he does. <laughs> I do too. So yeah, that'll happen until the, the show finishes and I honestly cannot wait because it's driving me to drink. <laughs> I need to stop. I can't wait till it's over. But as we know from maps, you need a little drink to fire yourself up a bit to make good content. To make drama. To make the drama happen. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. Um, Anything you've been watching lately? We're watching the latest season of Search Party, which, let it die. I think it's the last series. I hope it's the last series. I I, I believe it is. It's been dragged out as long as it possibly can. Yeah, let it die. Let it go. Landscapers was great. Olivia Coleman. David Thewlis. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's my David Thewlis. Your micro impersonation. Yes. (laughs) Uh, yeah, no, it was a good show. Check it out. Very arty. Yeah. The artiness very... got in its in a little bit, in, trip, tripped it up a little bit, I think. But uh, overall, very cool. Oh, I saw um, Drive My Car. Oh, yeah. It's just a three uh, hour long. It's very long. <laughs> it was very hard after a day's work watching. I would never go to the movies for an 8pm session. 
For three That's hours. That's insane. <laughs> and then I miscalculated how long it was going to be because I don't know how many minutes there are in an hour. But he's a doctor, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> it went for three bloody hours. That's too long. I almost nodded off, but I, I stayed strong. It's a very good movie. You should check it out. In fact, it could be podcastable. Watch this space. Well, you if know what I... If a spare three hours, Steph, you could <laughs> piece in it. I would like to do The Lost Daughter, which we also watch. Yeah. Uh, another Olivia Colman... Um, Tour de Force. Tour de Force. And um, that's all I'm going to say about The Lost Daughter because I actually think we should do it. Look, we watched Don't Look Up not that long ago. Um, before Christmas, because that's when it came out. I yeah, think. everyone was talking about it for oh, a, a it week was or so. Netflix's se- second most watched movie at the time. I think it was. Yeah, it was. It was a biggie. A biggie, and I just thought, you know what? I think we need to talk about this, not just because it's so relevant to our lives at the moment and all of what all of us are going through, like literally, but it also really nailed my biggest lived experience disorder, which is anxiety and particularly death anxiety. So today's going to be hard for me because I was triggered a lot while even researching and preparing for this episode because this is the, the thing I struggle with the most. And Jeez. I'm not the only one, for sure. It's very common. But yeah, this movie really depicted it. and But more than that, like it just, it was death anxiety personified. Yeah. And also just despair. But it was also funny, which took the edge off a little bit. <laughs> um, so I just thought we just fucking have to do it. Well, thank you for going through all of that for us. <laughs> you want to hit us with some plot? So Kate Dibiaski, who's played by Jay Law, um, is a PhD candidate at Michigan State University. And she... Michigan. Mi- Michigan. Discovers a previously unknown comet. Uh, her professor is Dr. Randall Mindy, played by Leo DiCaprio who confirms that it will collide with the Earth in about six months' time and is large enough to cause pretty much the end of the world and a planet extinction event. It's bigger than the one that killed the dinosaurs. NASA confirms the findings and their planetary defence coordination head, Dr Teddy Oglethorpe, played by Robert Morgan, accompanies Dibiaski and Mindy to present their findings to the White House. But the president, Janie Orlean, played by Meryl Streep, and... Her chief of staff, son, Jason, played by... Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill, um, who basically don't give a shit and are too bothered with the upcoming election to or midterms um, to give many hoots. And a sex scandal. And a sex scandal too. So I think it's pretty obvious that Janie Orlean is modelled off. Uh, President, you might have heard of Donald Trump. Oglethorpe urges Dibiaski and Mindy to leak the news to the media. So they end up going on a morning talk show with hosts Jack Bremer and Brie Eventi, who are Tyler Perry and our beautiful Kate Blanchett. One of us! She's an Aussie. Isn't she from New Zealand? She's Australian. They treat the topic with great frivolity and are just laughing about it. And then Dibiaski loses her composure and has a big rant and everyone mocks her online. So she's a bit of a Greta Thunberg uh, parody, Mm. it seems. Mindy, on the other hand, receives public approval for his looks. Well, little do we know until that point in the film that under that scraggly beard is Leonardo DiCaprio. (gasps) Oh, my God. And you know what? I love that he's kind of playing to his age. Like, yeah. he looks old, and he probably is, you know, the age he is playing. He must be in his 50s by now. Surely. Maybe, maybe 40s, 40s. Maybe 40s. Yeah. President Orlean decides to confirm the threat to distract from a sex 
scandal, but then announce a project to strike and divert the comet using nuclear weapons. The mission is successfully launched, but then the president abruptly aborts it when Peter Isherwell, the billionaire CEO of tech company Bash and another top donor of the party, discovers that the comet contains trillions of dollars worth of rare earth elements. So they decide to try and fragment and recover the comet from the ocean so that they can get juicy minerals minerals and get rich um but it's using a scheme that has no peer review and is not um supposed to work and peter israel is coded as someone very neurodivergent when we see him um and supposed to be like an elon musk see jeff Jeff bezos type character um messianic tech silicon valley type um, yep. And he can tell people how they're going to die and tells Orlean that she's going to be killed by a Brontorock and we're all like, what is that? Yeah, but, but <laughs> hold that Wait, oh, just a minute. So the White House, like, ignores Dibiaski and Oglethorpe and then hires Mindy as the National Science Advisor. So he ends up being part of their scheme to convince everyone of this new... The scheme to, to harvest, harvest the, minerals the minerals from the comet yes. instead of blowing it up. It turns into a world of chaos where there are people who are decrying alarmism and believing that mining a destroyed comet will create jobs and those that deny the comet even exists. Dibiaski returns to Illinois and then her parents kick her out of the house and then she begins a relationship with a young man named Yule who's just a shoplifter who's played by uh, Timothy Chalamet. He's very funny. Mindy is ending up having a relationship with the co-host of the uh, morning talk show, played by Kate Blanchett, and Mindy ends up breaking up with his wife. But eventually Mindy breaks down on TV after he realises how much the president is downplaying the comet. Long story short, Mindy, Dibiaski and Oglethorpe organise a protest campaign on social media telling people to just look up and recognise that the comet is coming. And it sounds very similar to um, what we've had to do around, I don't know, COVID and things like that. Yeah. Eventually, Bash tries to break the comet apart as is planned, but it goes pear-shaped and everyone realises that humanity is doomed and the comet is about to collide. Uh, Ishawel, Orlean and others in their elite circle board a sleeper spaceship designed to find an Earth-like planet. Um, and they all go into cryogenic freezing, but Ollie leaves her son behind, which is very funny. The comet hits Earth as Mindy and his family who have reconciled, Dibiaski, Oglethorpe and Yule all come together and have dinner. And everyone dies. The end. Or is it? <sighs> and then in a mid-credit scene, the people that left Earth in the ship before the comet's impact lands on a lush planet. 22,740 years later... They exit the spacecraft and then Orlean is suddenly killed by a large bird-like creature who is obviously a Brontorock. That's the movie. Did you enjoy the movie? I mean, I can't say I enjoyed it, but I... Did you think it was good? I thought it was... I thought it was amusing. I laughed and I thought it was relevant. What did you think? Yeah, I thought it was all right. It's a bit, uh, bit ham-fisted. Uh, yeah, no, but it's it's okay. It doesn't deserve all the hate or all the love it's getting. Well, it seems like the hate is all coming from right-wing publications and all the love is coming from left-wing and actual climate scientists, which makes sense. I I mean, definitely the right-wingers will hate it, but I think there's plenty of, you know, here's what don't look up got wrong about climate change type articles. A lot of them is like what... 
what I read wasn't so much the, the science within it. It's the message and what is going to actually help people to make to, to pay attention. Mm. That's what I read. Did you yeah. find otherwise? Yeah, I found that sort of thing and I found people saying that the message is actually just kind of shit, really. Like, there's no point to it. It's, yeah, like you say, it's not motivating um, and it kind of exists within the kind of political and celebrity distraction-based frivolous bubble that it's trying to take down. Mm-hmm. And that stuff's definitely coming from the left. Like, the right don't, right-wingers don't talk like that. yeah definitely but it's okay it's resoundingly okay (laughs) it's resoundingly okay you put the left and right opinions in the middle and it's like okay (laughs) um should we talk about lived experience yeah yeah so i'm gonna start with adam mckay is Mm. that how you say his name i've always said mckay but it's spelt mckay yeah let's just call him adam okay let's call him adam can i just start off by saying that he's a comedy and drama genius and i love him yeah. He is the showrunner for Succession for a bloody start. Yeah. He also made Anchorman, which is your favourite movie. It's a movie I really like. It's your favourite movie. I wouldn't want to go on on the internet saying that it's my favourite movie. You have. I just made you say it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, also. Uh, he's made some shit. He's made some shit. I've he never has... seen The Big Short, but you know what? Fuck The Big Short. I'm sure everyone loves The Big Short. Also, he did Barb and Star Goes to Vista Del Mar. Yeah, well, that's an incredible film. It's the best movie of the last two years. Ten years. Fifty years. <laughs> Do you remember, internet, the funny or die short called The Landlord? And it's this little girl called Pearl who comes knocking on Will Farrell's door asking for her, her fucking money. <laughs> Yeah. That is Adam McKay's daughter. Oh, I always thought it was Will Ferrell's daughter. No. Oh. And also she's got straight hair, of course. Because <laughs> she's not Will Ferrell's okay, daughter. Okay, fair enough. Um, I want my money. You pay now. <laughs> Still funny. <laughs> she's the best. If you haven't watched it, I will link it in the episode notes. It's <laughs> still hilarious. So Adam McKay Mackay says... This movie came from my burgeoning terror about the climate crisis and the fact that we live in a society that tends to place it as the fourth or fifth news story or in some cases even deny that it's happening and how horrifying that is, but at the same time preposterously funny. And I kind of see where he's coming from. It's quite, it, sometimes if, if I'm not crying, I'm laughing at the fact that people will still say COVID doesn't exist and things like that. Like, mm. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. And, you know, at the moment we're going through the worst flooding I think Australia has seen ever, as far as I am aware. The The Queensland flooding in 2011 was like that once in a century event and now it's happened again times a million with what's going on in New South Wales as well. So seeing that and still being on the side of climate change isn't real, it could make you laugh if it wasn't so devastatingly awful. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? None? I just like to get on with things. <laughs> so Adam McKay wanted to create a climate change movie that would be different from the Mad Max type post-apocalyptic films. And he and someone called David Sirota, so he must have... A journalist. He's a journalist. Um, came up with the idea after discussing the existential threat of climate change and their frustration over the lack of media coverage. And they were just going, oh, my God, can you believe that, like, this climate change stuff isn't really being covered? It's like a comet is being headed to Earth and it's going to destroy us and no one cares. And then Adam was like, oh, that's the idea. So obviously he's got climate fear of the end of the world in terms of lived experience. But I also found out that he was diagnosed with an essential tremor around 2000. 
and actually it's it's become a disability for him because he needs to conduct print interviews lying down um, and needs to be televised interviews in a special high-backed chair to accommodate that disability. He also had a heart attack while filming Vice and acknowledged that it was a heart attack because in Vice, Christian Bale's character, Dick Cheney, has multiple heart attacks. So he his symptoms and went, oh, I think this is a heart attack. So that's his experience of that's, medical life. That's his um, past medical history. Yes, um, I'm now his GP. (laughs) But yeah, that's all I kind of got on him. I mean, I guess in a nutshell, the 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 mental illness that we're talking about is climate anxiety anxiety and existential existential dread (laughs) anxiety. Yeah, it sounds like he scores the point for lived experience. Yeah, I'd say so. And he obviously created this with his own feelings and thoughts in mind. Yeah, I'm not going to go into Jennifer Lawrence's lived experience because we already covered her like two episodes ago yeah but it sounds like she's had pretty significant anxiety yeah so tick tick anything i'm sure she's a a a climate activist and whatever i think everyone in this film basically was yeah in some way i don't think you'd sign up for it if you didn't give a shit yeah yeah leonardo dicaprio he is obviously as probably everyone knows like he's made really boring speeches in oscar ceremonies about his thoughts on climate change so we know how much of an advocate he is if we know leo and his character was almost written for him from what it seems like right like it was written with him in mind and he was up like he adapted the lines and the script with adam mm. to create dr mindy to so, get his ideas out there yeah mm. so that's pretty cool um but i didn't even know this he actually has obsessive compulsive disorder yeah it's a thing. <laughs> it's yeah. It's a, it's a fact. Yeah. Um, but he, well, how do you know how it affects him? Like, what is? Does he talk about what his obsessions slash compulsions are? There's a lot out there on the internet. He's been quite open about it, and I won't go into it too much because I reckon we'll end up doing one of his films now. Yeah. Maybe The Aviator, where he plays Howard Hughes, who had obsessive compulsive disorder. Wow. So is Howard Hughes the one who like some wore, Hollywood dude. wore like tissue boxes on his feet? Oh, maybe. Like Mr. Burns in the casino. I don't. don't I haven't seen The Aviator. I guess that was Me neither. a Simpsons nod to him, maybe. And there's a Father John Misty lyric about him. Yes, there mm. is. That's, that's that's the extent of your knowledge. I read his Wikipedia page once, but you know, you read these pages and you're like, oh, cool, I know that now. But you don't. You don't, you don't, you don't know don't that. Because it. a couple of years later, that's all you got is but the Simpsons it's references. It's a trivia question about where did Howard Hughes wear shoeboxes? You'll be like, <laughs> on his feet. He, I, I will so, just so say. But yeah, but like, what are his, what are his things? Do we know? Um, lots of compulsions and obviously anxiety as a result of those, uh, you know, compulsions are used to quell that anxiety. Um, but yeah, when he filmed The Aviator, he became more severe in his OCD traits mm. and that was really hard to, to come back out of. Like mm. he got a lot worse, like his condition worsened because he was playing someone with the condition that he had and he, you know, hammed it up for the movie. Not hammed it up, but let go of a lot of his usual strategies to manage it. Yeah, right. And he found it really hard to get back into, you know, being able to manage it more. Mm. Um, and he, had, you know, had a routine in his trailer where he had to open and shut the door and walk in and out and, like, things like that. Mm. So, yeah, it's really interesting and I think we'll need to do The Aviator one day. Yeah, that sounds really... Yeah, that'll be interesting for us to do, like, the movie actually affecting the actor. Yeah, 
Ooh, but now we've maybe space. just done it very shortly. <laughs> <laughs> I need to touch on Robert Morgan because he's also one of the main characters, um, Dr. Oglethorpe. He's not an anxious person because this is his quote. So Rob Morgan is the opposite of me because he's talking about how expansive the galaxy and space is and that there's, you know, there could be other galaxies just like ours or more advanced than ours somewhere and, you know, the great combustion could be happening to create that galaxy right now. And he thinks, wow, I felt like my mind had expanded and that's amazing. When I think about that, I think I am terrified and that terrifies me. Mm. <laughs> um, and then in, um, I think it was a Netflix article, they ask him, does the movie scare you or does it give you hope? And he says, oh, it gives me hope because I think all of us will be able to see a little bit of ourselves and we'll be able to laugh with ourselves and have those conversations. So Sounds he, like he's taking it a bit more lightly than you. Very much more lightly. He obviously doesn't have a problem with anxiety and ra- irrational thinking. All or right, maybe so it's rational. You lose you lose a point for He's Rob. maybe too positive in my book. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Maybe that's the right attitude. Who knows? Who knows? I'll run through the other characters. Kate doesn't like climate change. Not a fan. Um, she also loves high schoolers having to do HSC through the pandemic. She really cares about them. Don't care. Okay. Next. Meryl Streep um, doesn't like Donald Trump. Uh, Don't care. Next. (laughs) Jonah Hill has strong feelings about climate change. Don't we all? Next. Tyler Perry had a fucking hugely traumatic childhood. He was absolutely fucked. He was sexually and physically abused. And it really made me upset. Oh, that's horrific. Yeah. I do care about that. Thank you. (laughs) I do care for you, Tyler. Now... Michael, what about Kid Cudi? Kid Cudi. Do you Cuddy. think he's got anything? Well, he's got beef with Kanye West. And that is enough. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> that is enough. I mean, can you imagine? No one needs beef with Kanye West, as we know. <laughs> he has a long history of depression, suicidal ideation, alcohol and drug addiction, and he is a mental health advocate. I feel for him. Yeah, it sucks. It sucks. Yeah. It sucks. Uh, Melanie Linsky says she was an anxious, fearful child and worried incessantly about nuclear war and stranger abduction. She is me. <laughs> <laughs> nuclear war, she must be a... I was worried about that shit. Wait. Yeah, when I was little. Yeah. I was a very anxious kid. Yeah. And she's... I've always liked Melanie Linsky. Also, bad respect for her because when Two and a Half Men got big because she was on that show, she left as it got big. She was like, nah, I don't want this. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Like mad respect. I didn't know she was even. I didn't. I don't. I didn't know. I don't know who she, who she is. She was in Heavenly Creatures with Kate Winslet. Mm, I saw that. Yeah, and she's now in Yellow Jackets, which is really huge at the moment. Everyone loves it, and we need to watch it. Oh, okay. I've never heard of it. Um. So I'm. Just, what can I say? I don't know what you can. She say. must be crazy to have left two and a half men. <sighs> what did Charlie Sheen do to her? He probably said he's got drinking tiger juice and he's winning or something. <laughs> Whatever he went on about. Such topical humor. <laughs> Mark Rylance. <laughs> Does he have... He's a loony lefty. Is he? Good. He's into peace activism, um, an advocate for, for drug and alcohol addiction support through using theatre as a therapy. He's into Indigenous rights and he's a big Labour Party Jeremy Corbyn fan. He's obviously British. And when they casted Elon, uh, an Elon Musk-esque tech billionaire, they picked Mark because they wanted someone who was going to create a character and he can do anything. 
So if we want to blame that character for being a little bit of a parody of neurodivergence, we can blame Mark Rylance. Yeah, fuck you, Mark. <laughs> He's obviously a very respected like theatre um, actor. Yeah. But we're going to disrespect him by saying, fuck you, Mark. <laughs> yeah, fucking Mark. Fu- yeah, that's the new name of our podcast. Fuck you, Mark Rylance. Rylance. (laughs) Ariana Grande has fought for LGBTQ rights, voting participation, feminist issues, and the Black Lives Matter movement. However. Was she the bomb lady? The bomb Yeah, was it her? Wasn't she PTSD from that? Was it her? Was it her? Or was it somebody else? Let me look it up. Manchester Manchester Arena. Arena. Yeah, it was Ariana Grande. Yeah. I think I remember her having, like, yeah. very reasonably having oh. PTSD. Oh, who wouldn't? That. That's yes. reasonable. But I have to say one thing about Ariana Grande. She is white. But how do you explain her exotic name? Well, it's not that exotic. It's European. For big. It means, in Italian, it means... Grande. Big Ariana. She is what they call a blackfisher. Uh-huh. She makes herself look black or Latino constantly, but she is not. Oh, okay. Mm. All right. Not good. Um, the Kardashians do that all the time too. So that's all I have to say about that. Is that not just like blackface? Yeah, a little bit. Right. And it's making, you know, using someone's culture, that you a part of it that you think is cool or attractive and taking that on for your own sort of benefit. It's a bit shit. Mm. I don't like that. <laughs> no, me neither. Does Timothy Chalamet do that? No. No. Actually, he uh, French fishes. <laughs> He's not French. He's not French. Despite all the little dots and lines and stuff above his, his name. What is his background, his cultural background? He's an angel. <laughs> well, I will... I will tell you. <laughs> what, what is it? You'll tell me. I will tell you that he's supportive of LGBTI rights, which I'm not surprised by. Fair enough. Um, What's his stance on Army Hammer? Well, he reckons I had a really, well, this one article I read reckons he had a really good relationship with him, but maybe it was um, potentially. Because Army never tried to eat him. Non consensual. <laughs> <laughs> he also don- he's donated all his pay from the latest Woody Allen film that he did to Time's Up and to LGBTI rights, like Rain, which is fantastic, but maybe he shouldn't do any movies with Woody Allen. Just saying. Yeah, that's a toughie. It's a toughie. It's a toughie. He's also I into know, at least he apologised. Well, he didn't. He just donated his money from the film. Well, I meant that was his apology. Is it, though? Well, it's like a... Yeah, all right, fair enough. <laughs> I don't think it's an apology enough. And that's all the characters. Not, it's actually not, but it's enough. That's enough for us. We all, we're all ready to go on to accuracy. I'd like to just tell you about how Adam tried to make the film as accurate as possible. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I love that. So he got an astronomer called Amy Mainzer, who is the principal investigator of NASA's Neowise mission that tracks near-Earth objects. And she served as an astrotech advisor for the film. So she provided scientific advice and supported with writing scenes from an early stage of production. And Leonardo DiCaprio spoke with her quite a bit. Um, long conversations about the real mathematics behind it. And Leo got about six months of quality education on orbital dy- dynamics. Do you think he needed that? I think he would have got it whether he needed it or not. Because Leo <laughs> seems pretty serious about his shit. It's like a... Uh... Dustin Hoffman spending heaps of time oh, yeah, with, with the the real life Rain Man. Yeah, who wasn't even. 
and autistic. Um, um, but yeah. it's also like, why don't you just act like you know that stuff? I think that helped in the film. Like it looked... You could tell that Leo was doing the real calculations as he was writing on the whiteboard. And also I didn't understand it, which means it was probably accurate. <laughs> yeah, well, good. You know, we, all, we love an actor who really commits, don't we? He's... He's one of the method actors of our time. Did he sleep inside the still warm carcass of an astrophysicist? <laughs> what? Like he did for The Revenant. Did he do that? Yeah. What did he do? That's his whole thing, right? He slept in the in a in a moose or something. Oh. <laughs> like yeah. in uh, Star Wars. I when... feel like you've mentioned that in this podcast. I talk about it nonsense. <laughs> I've got a <laughs> you tattoo. Talk about it in your sleep. I have a tattoo of Leonardo DiCaprio's head sticking out of a cadaver. <laughs> Actually, that would be really cool. Yeah, not bad. bad. Okay, death anxiety. Death anxiety. So death anxiety is also called thanatophobia. And when I was looking it up, I was like, lots of lots of articles saying it's got it's an actual real life mental illness, like a diagnosis. And I'm like, no, it's not. Well, it's not in the DSM. It's not in the DSM. Therefore, (laughs) it doesn't exist. Not real. No, obviously that's a joke, everyone. It is just a. Is it in the ICD ten then? I don't know. Actually, I should look. But, you know, it's a phobia, just like we have lots of different phobias. It's just like anxiety, like it's just the object of an anxiety. Of an anxiety. So some people have fear of heights, fear of spiders, fear On of On Maury Povich, the pickle phobia girl. I forgot about that. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't laugh at people's phobias. Um, you, but you got it. Anyway. Yeah. But death anxiety is extremely common and, uh, you know, there's lots of mental illnesses that are kind of sprung from that. For example, OCD is that fear that something bad is going to happen, such as death. Health anxiety is often, you know, being fixated on being sick or being scared of hospitals or all of those things um, because, uh, you know, underlying all of that is that fear of death. But, like, I mean, like, a Freudian would say that everything is about fear of death. Yeah, yeah, And wanting to fuck. Yeah, fear of death, wanting to fuck your mum. (laughs) Point two B, your mum. Your mum. And I mean, like our society, our entire world is based on death. Like religion, a large part of religion could be attributed to just like what most happens when we die. Like most. How can I make death better for myself? And how do I make sure when I die, it's it's a good experience, not an awful experience, or no experience at all. Yeah. So I I read this quote that said. Thoughts of death have the ability to create a sense of powerlessness, loneliness, and meaninglessness, and for some individuals may seriously undermine their experience of happiness or peace. Although people may develop helpful methods of managing their fears of death, such as building relationships and working towards meaningful goals, they may equally engage in maladaptive coping strategies such as avoidance. As a result, death anxiety has been argued to be a transdiagnostic construct contributing to the development and maintenance of numerous mental health conditions, as I sort of said before. Um, I mean, I I don't think I really, like, necessarily... Agree. Agree with that. Why not? Well, like... Well, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's kind of a meaningless thing to say. Well, I think it's trying to say that, like, a fear of death underlies lots of different diagnoses. Yeah, like, it's just a part of a lot of things. Yeah. Because death is seen as something negative to avoid. It just, you know, it's fear of it manifests itself in, you know, depression, thinking a lot about mm. death and anxiety, being scared that you're going to die. But then depression, anxiety, two different diagnoses. Yeah, okay. Wow, it really is a trans 
Yeah. Okay. I convinced yeah, you. Yeah, I'm convinced. I convinced you. <laughs> um, also, panic disorder. All, all of them. All of them. You, you're, you're right, I'm convinced. Because that's where my panic disorder really comes from. Uh, there was also a quote about treatment. Because how do you treat death anxiety? You're going to die. You can't stop that. You know, whereas you can't really CBT your way out of it. Mm. So standard treatments do not usually address death anxiety directly. Some argue that this failure to address death fears may in fact be due to the death anxiety of clinicians and researchers themselves. How can we begin to work with clients' concerns about death and dying if we ourselves avoid the subject in our own life? Mm. So we, I mean, that, I think that's why death has so, so, so much power over us psychologically is because we are we don't know anything about it and we just avoid it. We just get too freaked out by the by the concept, so we just dance around it. We, mm. we even struggle to say, like we use euphemisms for death. Like passing away. Passing away. Um, people will say commit suicide rather than... Kill themselves. Kill themselves, and that's been changed to like unliving. Um, what? Mm-hmm. I haven't heard that before and I hate it. It sounds like an app does um i think it's trying to be a sort of like less judgy way of saying like you're unalive yeah, but even like that is avoiding you, the the term death when you say kill yourself it has sort of like a stick figure like stabbing themselves with yeah a like a murder yourself like yeah um but died by their own by their hand. own ha- died by suicide <laughs> is yeah probably the best way to say it yeah because suicide it sounds dumb yeah anyway um, we're into the weeds we are into the weeds Three types of death acceptance have been proposed. So escape acceptance, embracing death as a welcome escape from the suffering and pain of one's life. Approach acceptance, accepting death due to one's beliefs about the existence of a desirable afterlife. And neutral acceptance, accepting death as a natural part of life and something outside of one's own control. And it's hard seeing these three ways of acceptance because A, I feel privileged in saying that I like life and I don't want it to end. But isn't um, it nice to be asleep? Yeah, but I'm still living by dreaming. Imagine if you just slept forever. I don't want to. I'll miss my son. <laughs> I'll miss you. Approach acceptance. I don't have beliefs about an afterlife. I'm not a religious person. And neutral acceptance that something's outside of one's own control terrifies the fuck out of me. <laughs> That's the whole point of anxiety is, is not point of anxiety, but why we get anxiety is we don't like to not be in control so i can't accept it (laughs) yeah i think like i think cbt and those sorts of things probably do have a role in certain situations well the best treatment that is proposed is cbt and systematic desensitization or like exposure therapy but how do you expose somebody to death i don't want to but how do you i don't want to no no i understand but like i don't want to even think about how do (laughs) I don't know. Um, I think, you know, it would be like talking about death, seeing movies about death, reading about death, you know, going to talks about what we know about death, just right. being experiencing the idea of death. And one of my strategies has been just you, saying the word death was one of my strategies for trying to deal with my death anxiety. Did that um, help? It did, but I think what underpins my death anxiety the most is the feeling, the dread of what happens after death and the fact that your consciousness ends and there's not, like you don't know what that's like. You don't know what that feeling is going to be like because you're not, you don't exist anymore. So for me, the idea of my life as I know it and my, um, my psyche and my consciousness not being there just, just 
freaks me out. And even when people say, oh, what if, you know, there is a heaven and you live forever? That freaks me out too. I don't want to live forever. Where, even if it's a, having a good time, there needs to be an end point. So when, when I, you know, I went to religious schools when I was younger and when people would say eternal life with God is so good, like, oh, we've got to believe in God so we can live forever with him. And I'd be like, I don't want to live forever. That sounds horrible to me. And it's kind of like The Good Place. That's why we should watch The Good Place because <laughs> um, it really tackles that too. You know, spoilers for The Good Place here, including you, so cover your ears while I tell them <laughs> the microphone. Basically how The Good Place ends up is they end up in The Good Place, but eventually they decide, you know, I've had my, I've had my go in The Good Place. I think I want to just end my consciousness now. And like, wow, like that. But you don't like either, neither of those things, both of those things terrify you. I know. I ha- that's that's why I can't rationalise cognitive behaviour therapy my way out of it because there is no comfort. You, can, yeah, you can't know. I can't find any comfort just, in it. Is it not just exactly the same as before you were born? That freaks me out too. <laughs> but you were, Consciousness fine, you, were fine, you were fine with that. Being born? No, before you were born. I was fine with the fact that I didn't exist before I was born. Yeah. But I wasn't alive then, so I'm not experiencing it. I'm going to experience death. Mm. I'm going to experience life finishing. And it just can't, I can't get my head around it. I get really deep and existential with yeah. it. And whenever I try to explain it to people, they don't quite understand. I haven't had a lot of psychologists who I've seen who really get it either because it doesn't make sense to me really at the end of the day. I have bad arachnophobia, so sometimes you'll hear me just saying spiders, <laughs> spiders. Some people use that as a strategy. That's a good strategy. I've yeah. never heard of it. No, I'm sorry. I um. But, you know, how do you just desensitise me away from not knowing something? Yeah. But I think, I think in certain situations, like somebody like, you know, you in your 30s or younger, there, there would be pretty hard stats on your likelihood of dying. Okay, well, it's 2022 and you're a 30X-year-old woman. Today, you have this percentage chance of dying. And it would be negligible. Like, I, I know that this data exists because there's a thing about how the first day of your life, as in when you're a one-day-old baby, it's, like a- it's the highest risk of dying you'll have in your life up until you're 93. So it's like a reverse bell curve. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, you have high risk of dying when you're really little and then it tapers off dramatically quickly. Mm. And then after that, your risk of dying only reaches that stage again when you're 93. So when I'm 93, I'm going to be freaking the fuck out. <laughs> um, but what I'm saying is you you as a clinician could be like, look, these are the stats. Yeah. Your chance of dying is is totally neg- negligible at this time in your life. But Accepting that something catastrophic out of nowhere could happen, we know that Freak accidents happen, terrible diagnoses come out of nowhere. Yeah, but it doesn't matter if it's imminent or far away. I'm still scared of it. Right. I still, if I, I will, if I think too hard about it, I will have a panic attack. I have to stop myself. And then after that feeling goes away, I feel really, I get the sort of come down after a panic attack and feel really depressed and want to cry. Mm. So it impacts my life Yeah. if I don't think about it. So the best thing is to avoid it. What can I do about it? Nothing. You sound really anxious right now. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> I wanted to, do you want to keep talking about this? Or I'll just we park it for now. <laughs> good therapizing, good counseling strategy. Just breathe. Just that's, breathe? That's, that's the doctor's just strategy just for anxiety. Just and then die of a heart attack. <laughs> no. Um, Have you ever heard of sudden cardiac death syndrome? So. <laughs> I wanted to talk about something that's related, which I think is. Can I just finish my, my thought? 
And the reason, just the reason why I picked this film, particularly around this issue, is because climate anxiety, you know, we've heard very recent data that is really scary about how long we have before um, the, the earth heats up too high to sustain life. And, you know, our government are like, oh, you know, we'll reduce emissions by 2050. And, you know, I, I'm not the only one who thinks we could be all dead by then. So when you say, you know, there could be a catastrophic thing, but, you know, imagine that it's ages in the future when you're going to die. It's actually quite real that this could happen, you know, that climate could get so bad that there is a catastrophic event. Mm. And, well, and we're seeing, as, we're as seeing we've seen those catastrophic events. Now yeah. it's happening. Mm. That's um, my piece. I've said my piece. Question. No, because I actually, I, I wanted to talk about climate anxiety because obviously if you didn't get it by now, the, the comet's a metaphor in the movie. Oh my God. Yeah. It's actually about climate change. Climate Cl- change. Climate? I don't know. Is it also about COVID though? Well, just as an aside, I did read an article when the movie came out about how they were making it pre-COVID. Mm. It was in in pre-production, pre-COVID, and then all this COVID started happening and they were like, fuck, we need to make this movie way more extreme because people are being insane about COVID. Yeah. So they took things that happened throughout COVID and, like, Hollywoodized them. Um, So it's actually a more extreme movie. Mm. I think I uh, I can't actually remember where I've read this article, but um, Adam McKay was like, there were things that, they had written before COVID that they were like, oh, no, we'll get rid of that. That's too crazy. That would never happen. And then it actually did happen in COVID. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like the Simpsons predicting so many things. Like yeah. they actually went and predicted some of it. Yeah, just like the idea of climate anxiety, um, I was doing some reading about it. It's something that I, I, I have to confess that I don't feel. Even though you have a son who you might die of a comet crashing down onto him yeah like because you know i know people who have chosen not to have kids because of yeah climate stuff that 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 thinking doesn't resonate with me at all not saying that it's right or wrong like they should do whatever they what whatever follow their values but it doesn't resonate with me mm-hmm. and i know that you have pretty good going climate anxiety <laughs> yeah did you get that vibe <laughs> yeah but I'm here as your lived experience host. <laughs> so we'll, we'll switch Not roles. I think climate anxiety. We'll switch roles. I, I find it very, I find it really interesting. What, um, what else? But yeah, no, I, I was re- I was doing a little bit of reading. There's a, they've developed a scale to measure climate anxiety, which is totally on point <laughs> for psychometricians or whatever. <laughs> but no, it, it is, it's a real thing. Um and the scale actually measures like just your general degree of anxiety about climate and mm. also how much that anxiety actually impairs how you function, mm. how you sleep, how you work, how your relationships are. And yeah, it's it's legit. A lot of people have impaired functioning as a result of their climate anxiety, which in some ways would would Slowly like puts up my hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really though? Yeah. 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 I would say so. That's one of the things that triggers my panic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. That sucks. I forgive you. Legitimately. Uh, interestingly, a lot of this research comes out of Australia um, and the people who are most affected by climate anxiety tend to be people who live in areas that are affected by climate change. More aggressively. Yeah. Pacific Islands, Australia, 
those sorts of areas. Mm. I found that very interesting. And there's kind of several different constructs about like how people respond to their climate anxiety. Um, and I think the one that I have is called eco paralysis. Oh. It's something like that. I, I actually can't remember what it's called. It's something like that mm-hmm. where it's like, fuck, this is so terrifying. I don't know what to do. I'll just press on. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of that neutral acceptance Except um, death I is think part, so. and there's nothing we can do about it? Because I do, there's another thing they refer to it as a hyper object, mm-hmm. something that's just so vast, it's pretty much impossible to fully comprehend. Yeah. And I was just thinking while I was researching for this, like, when you do public health and there's a public health issue, you can be like, uh, you know, too many babies are dying from diarrheal disease. Mm-hmm. And you can make these flowcharts that are like, well, there's shit sewerage and women aren't educated enough. And you can all link it together. I'm sorry, women no, aren't educated yeah, enough? Yeah, like in developing... Parents aren't educated enough. But in developing countries, that is a specific issue that leads to illness. It's a, okay. so, it's, uh, it's uh, a right. social determinant of health. All right, I get you, I get you. And I was just thinking about climate change and what that flowchart would look like. And it's just impossible yeah. to possibly conceive of that. And I just think, like, switching to laundry powder in a refillable container Using is such a microscopic part of that flowchart mm. that I'm just like, you know, I, I want to do the right thing, but sometimes it's just like, I don't think, but my recycling bin is full, I'm going to put this piece of cardboard in yeah. landfill. I've never heard or seen you do that, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> this has probably this, happened more since we had this Casper. This is a secret that has been revealed. <laughs> My secret shame. Anyway, yeah, so what right. I'm trying to say, I yeah. think that, that that underpins my paralysis around mm. climate change and just my total avoidance of it and just walling it off. Yeah. I don't think about it. I can't engage with but it. But having said that, you do you are a very environmentally conscious behaving person at the same time. I try my hardest because I just think I think maybe our generation was really starting with that clean up Australia type stuff where when we were in primary school we were walking around Which picking up rubbish. Way? Yeah. Yeah. In your parade. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I've just got in my head, ingrained, cannot get rid of it, that if you litter, you're a monster. <laughs> and that just extends to everything else that has some sort of environmental impact to me. Yeah. And I, I see what you mean because when you think of the big polluters – what can we do to stop them polluting, like those big fossil fuel companies? Yeah. What can I do about that? And there's I'm not so much convince them. I'm, you know, yeah. And there's so much that we do unknowingly that helps them. The only thing we can do is try and vote our current government out. But like, so we, other people, you and I are only two votes. You know? I know. That, that just makes me feel even more paralyzed. I think I think that we should vote. <laughs> yeah. Well, we we will we have no choice we get fined um but yeah yeah i know what you're saying um and you know imagine if obviously okay if you're listening to this podcast you're probably a lefty by now <laughs> by now because of us <laughs> we, we convinced you in our rain man um, episode how? i don't know like it's um, not a political podcast it's becoming strictly one, politically agnostic but that's because climate change isn't a political issue. It's like a scientific issue. And this is a scientific podcast. See, I, I hate when people say that because it is a political issue. Like it's, How to deal with it is a political issue, but climate change is a real thing that happens. So it's not made up by political parties. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. So, yeah, okay, fair it's enough. Not a the management is issue. political. I just think, like, once you generate a fact 
you punt it out into the world and it becomes a political issue, it becomes a philosophical issue, mm-hmm. it gets torn, torn apart by all the different possible perspectives that you can apply to it. For the same reason that when the Muppet Christmas Carol movie mm-hmm. came out, <laughs> you know, it wasn't a psychological movie, but we made we it made one. We made it one. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we are a political podcast then. <laughs> Shit. Sorry, guys. We have digressed severely. Yeah. It's all good. It's all good stuff, though, it's right? All good chat. But that's sort of our theoretical background, I guess. That's what we think. Our rationale. What about um, the movie? And what? the accuracy of death, ang- like what that climate anxiety is. Mm. How the film approaches that, I think it does in many different ways. I think yeah. it like portrays the different ways of coping with that death, climate anxiety, but also with a crisis in general. Do you agree? Yeah, fully. I think that all of the main characters represent a coping strategy. Yeah. So I think that Mindy is death anxiety pretty much personified because we know he has severe anxiety already. Um, he takes benzos or something, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I suspect it's panic disorder or, you know, panic is one of the symptoms of his anxiety disorder. And he has a panic attack on screen, which I thought was a very good depiction because it made me anxious. Like he's on the TV show and he has a panic attack. Yeah. Like on screen, yeah, yeah. on screen. Yeah. Yeah. On, sorry. Yeah. On, in the morning talk show. Yeah. Like he's, he's trying to get the message out in a way that everyone understands, but he just, he's sort of, when you think of fight or flight, he's flight. Like he just sort of clams up and can't really get the message out. He just yeah. wants to leave. Having, knowing that he's got this anxiety disorder, he still works in a very anxious field, clearly. So, hence, probably needing the benzos. Yeah, um, and I understand that this is that like quite a realistic portrayal of scientists working in these sort of existential type of fields, like that um, the researcher who cried on morning TV in real mm, life. And mm. um, I saw a lot of articles that were like. This is me every day. I'm a climate researcher. No one gets it. And I have no communication skills. (laughs) But, you know, yeah, like there was a tweet by Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson who was like, I was wincing, anxious, nervous, sweating, and nearly shouted at the screen, are you fucking kidding me? Listen to the scientists. So, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And then, like, the TV presenters, and I think this is a big part of what McKay is trying to lampoon. Lampoon. Is that they, their approach is pure distraction yeah make fun of it make light of it yeah um you know getting bogged down in trivial things like celebrities sex lives and whatever and that's yeah you know a distractive sort of avoidant strategy yeah equally valid equally valid Um, my approach it's your approach for sure (laughs) um does it achieve much it achieves nothing it doesn't but we've already said the message out we've already said what can we achieve On that note, I think Kate Dibiaski, who's supposed to be like the Greta Thunberg character, she's angry. She's raging and she wants action. And Greta is one of those people who wants action as well. Um, So that's the person who's like, what can I do about it? I need to do everything about it. And if you're not doing anything about it, then you're a fucking asshole. And Mm. um, I guess that's me as well as... You're both of the heroes. No, fuck you. (laughs) No, I'm saying that's my reaction. I'm not in denial <laughs> and I'm not making laugh light of it. And I think the president is people who are just in denial. The president. You want to go there. No, 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 I disagree. I think that 
I think her coping strategy is just like, look, I've got my life up until I'm 80 or whatever. I'm going to deal the hand I'm played. I'm going to take every opportunity. She sees the comet as an opportunity to distract from the sex scandal. Yeah. She sees it as, as an opportunity to, to make money, to get reelected. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's kind of valid too. You know, like I think about... But the... it's, it's to fuck everyone who's going to be affected by it. Exactly. It's a very selfish way to look at it. I think of the dirty fucking boomers and the way <laughs> that they precluded our generation ever entering the housing market. It's yes. the exact same thing. Yes. This is such a political podcast now. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I, I think you can justify all of these approaches. You can. What about Peter Isherwell, who basically monetizes it, like uses it for technology and for money? I think probably the same thing as the president. Yeah. And, and you know, in real life, that's kind of what Elon Musk is doing. The whole idea of SpaceX is to populate Mars and get and, lots of money and he's making shit, a shit ton of money off it yeah, yeah. Um, and he wants to populate Mars because the earth is doomed and it's funny because I always before I got to know him I thought wow Elon Musk he's created the Tesla he's populating Mars he's doing good shit for the world how great to have someone with lots of money actually use it for good but now we've discovered that he's not that good and he's a bit of an asshole. I like SpaceX. <laughs> I want to live on Mars. But he's not doing it in a sustainable, selfless way. He's doing it in a selfish way. It looks like his intentions are good, but they're actually not good. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because he's going to end up on Mars and when the world turns to shit, he'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, look, I think he's a massive fuckhead. Um, I think if you can achieve something good and make millions of dollars off it, maybe that's okay, but... I don't know. I wouldn't take a firm stand on that, I guess. But I think people are always going to interpret that as not good because if you do something good and make millions of dollars off it, then was it really altruistically good? You should do it. You should do the good thing and not make money off it. But he, <laughs> this is this is a philosophical argument. Oh my god, where are he we going? Ta- he makes that money and puts it into other good things. Let's 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 park. <laughs> let's park our Elon Musk. I, I I just want no before we park it. I just want to say I don't like Elon Musk. Okay, thank you. That whole pedophile. Exactly. (laughs) Like, who is he? He's not actually that left wing, really, is he? He's a righty. So why is he doing... Anyway. Um, So there's also the musicians in the film. I don't even know if they give a shit. (laughs) Kid Kid Cudi and Ariana Grande or, Mm. you know, they're sort of characters. Yeah. Um, And it's like they're just turning it into art. And also activism through, you know, joining forces with the scientists. But I don't get the sense that they really are aware or care that much that the world's going to end. They're just like, oh, well, this is good marketing for me and yeah, this they, gives me they, some money. They're making money off it. it Which I think is a, a comment of, in itself. It reminds me of that whole um, Imagine yeah. the Gal Gadot imagine oh, yeah. thing. <laughs> we should link to that too because it's very relevant. <laughs> but, yeah, how musicians can latch onto a cause just because it makes them look good and gives them money. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that, like, end world hunger ad campaign with the clicks? I don't like, remember that. You don't remember that? It was like Justin Timberlake was in it and it was like every three seconds a child dies of hunger. Uh, they, oh, they yeah, I do remember They clicked every three seconds. Yeah. And there's another famous person. It was really powerful. Mm-hmm. I do want to say, though, I feel like the movie as a whole is like a comment on why. I don't know if this is if it's, if I've read it right, but I feel like it's almost 
a comment on how the world's avoidance of death stops us from dealing with death properly or even preventing it because so many people avoid it in so many different ways or use it as different leverage or opportunities rather than actually deal with it and figure out how to like there's so much power in the movie and there's so many things that could have happened to stop the comet crashing into earth but because of the ego and the avoidance it doesn't happen and the world ends and I think it's a comment of like we need to actually address climate anxiety death anxiety so we can actually deal with the situation because it's bigger than politics it's bigger than philosophy it's it is it it just is Mm. ultimately it's sort of an indictment of people in power not acting for the common good yeah and it doesn't i think it's reasonably silent on what an individual can actually do i think it's playing with um sort of figurehead characters that represent large groups of people yes yeah communities yeah exactly so leonardo dicaprio is just all scientists yes And um, the president is just all politicians. And I feel like um, Kate DiBiaschi, her, you know, her cute hairstyle and her, her nose ring is like all all smart lefties, like all yeah, British, like uh, the smart young millennial activists, usually women, um, because women are best. Um, <laughs> women are best. Women are best. <laughs> like she embodies all of those people, a lot of people who I would be friends with. Yeah, and it kind of makes it just like a puppet show that's kind of just exposition of where we're at Yeah, without really any substance. Like, here comes the... <laughs> this is like the bad jester with the baseball bat to beat up the millennial type, yeah, like, you know. Oh, no. oh, here comes Kate Blanchett, like the TV show yeah. interview and yeah. be silly. Yeah, um, true. But, w- but what I will say, for, for, for strictly for our purposes... This is an interesting film in the sense that it deals with a mental health topic, climate anxiety, mm. but every single character is manifesting it in a different way. Yes, yes. Whereas most of the other films that we do, um, maybe it's one character with a mental illness and how people react to them, mm. or you know, maybe it's a family with a couple of different things going on, yeah. whereas this is one illness expressed by many different characters so instead of getting like a one-dimensional, potentially stereotypical sort of view, we get a bit of a spectrum of stereotypes. <laughs> of, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think that's strictly from a psychocinematic perspective, a point in its favour. At yeah. least makes it a, an, an interesting anomaly. And I think um, you know, I, I don't even necessarily want to use the term mental illness because most people yeah. with death anxiety, it doesn't impede their functioning. It's it's a, it's a, it's a mental. It's a symptom. Yeah, it's. Or, a, and on the note, well, you know, we've slipped into stereotypes. Bling. Everyone in this movie is a bit of a stereotyped character, but they have depth. I think they have depth still. And they don't just exist. They interact and things happen. But I guess maybe to its detriment, it is a big tropey movie. Like, yeah. it's not subtle. It is in your face, slap, slap you on the cheek. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people... Or some people that I've read have accused Adam of being lazy for that fact. Like his writing's really obvious. There's not much nuance to it. I haven't read the term on the nose so many times. <laughs> not since you wrote the last transcript of a psychocinematic uh, I episode. Did that t- I was doing that today. So yeah. I think I think that's the point though. Yeah, it is the point. It, like he wanted to make like, it I'm something okay really it. huge and obvious. Yeah. To match how huge an issue he feels that. Climate changes. And linking in, Except like, he, he wanted to make it something simple. 
Like when you see some of the leaders of this world and how stereotypical they actually are. Like when you see Scott Morrison doing a promo in front of in Lismore taking photos of him pretending to help like he is a stereotype of himself so it kind of is accurate (laughs) like yeah I I think a a, a big criticism though of of, in terms of how on the nose it is is just the the metaphor of the comet was that your own like unprompted on the nose sorry go on (laughs) the metaphor of the comet is a little bit thin in the sense that I think the whole point, the whole thing with climate change is that it affects different people differentially over time. Yeah, it's and not as it's the instant as that. Yeah. The vulnerable populations are going to bear the brunt of it, mm. at least in the medium term, in terms of climate t- t- terms. Whereas this is a catastrophe that happens to everybody all at once. Yeah, and, and I think and that we only a lot... really see rich people, privileged people that it affects, apart from oh, like actually that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Apart from what the random like Baraka Koyaanisqatsi style cutaways to like oh yeah tribes yeah, 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 some no, islands and shit. no, it's like you know there's there's Timothy Chalamet's character yeah, who's basically yeah. homeless and a shoplifter. He's like yeah. the only person without privilege in the film, and he's yeah. white and yeah. ma- male, white and man. So, yeah. but yeah, what what I what really, I yeah. I, I think that there's stuff in there that could have been teased out to make a more interesting film, like. You know, the fact that there's a lot of political inaction about climate change is because, well, for the foreseeable future, it's only going to affect people that we don't care about. Yeah. Um, that would have been interesting to see. But you can't do that with a comet metaphor. No. And maybe that's why they chose the comet metaphor, because that would have been a little too cruel. I guess. And too in your face. It makes it like, well, we we are all in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah, we have to do this all together. Yeah. But it did have the allegory of that maybe in the film of um, Peter Ishuel's um, group going into the cryogenic chamber and coming Oh, yeah, like there's the two, 2,000 rich people get to yeah. leave yeah. before it hits. Yeah. I guess yeah. that, that yeah, kind of deals true. with that in that yeah. way, in a silly um, way. Is that um, is it the day after tomorrow where they all end up in a big boat? Oh, God. Or is like 2020? What, you think of Snowpiercer in a train? No, no, no. Well, same thing. Yeah. Um, I, but I, they kept the poor people in Snowpiercer. I don't remember what happens in Day After Tomorrow at the end. I just remembered wanking to Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> okay. No, I don't um, No, no, you're thinking of Kevin Bacon in... No, yeah, Kevin Bacon in Waterworld. Was Kevin Bacon in Waterworld? I think so. Was it Kevin Bacon? No, oh, Kevin Costner. Oh, fuck the Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> fuck the Kevins. This has been a very on theme, like everything we've talked about has been about roughly the same thing, but we should talk about Peter Ishuel. Yes. And the stereotype of yes. the... Neurodivergent, coded autism. What, what's the maybe. bad, what's the nasty word that they use? A savant. He's like Oh, a, they just say, do they say that in the film? No, 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 they don't, they don't say it in the movie, but that's kind of the stereotype, yeah. right, that they're yeah. playing on. Um, I didn't care for it. No, me neither. It, it yeah, it's got that sort of superpower kind of trope. And I don't know, like I feel like it was played for laughs when he walks in the room and everyone's like, I, I no eye contact around Peter. Like, put your eyes down. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And I thought like that's trying to like be like <laughs> people, you know, who have autism who don't like eye contact. Or is wouldn't that be silly if we all had to do that? Like, yeah. 
Well, if that's what you need, that's what you need. Yeah, it's being mm. accommodating. But it was in the movie. It's like, oh, he's so odd and quirky and and rich and and you know, on a, you know, like a superhero type character. That's what people do around him. Yeah, it I might have like just that. been like. I mean, I think you could also read it as just like that's how powerful he sees himself, and he yeah. thinks he can get people to avert their eyes from him. But I think but taken on a whole, it is he is being coded as autistic. Yeah, he absolutely um, is. Yeah, and, and I think that's a shame. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and the way he's he's so aloof and very selfish and quite rude hmm. um, to people, and he's also very exploitative. And yeah, he just thinks about himself. So it's a very bad trope. Yeah. Um. Obviously, it's not outed that that's what they were going for, or that he has autism or anything, but yeah. I think it's pretty obvious that's what they were going for. What about a reading of him as just a parody of Elon Musk where it's like, Elon Musk so cray. I, I, I don't think it was obvious enough and I don't think we know enough about Elon Musk's quirks. Well, mm. I don't personally. Mm. Um, do we know that Elon Musk has autism? No, 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 no. Um, I mean, a, a case could probably be made. Whether it, if it if it's just poke, if it's poking fun at Elon Musk, you have to ask the question: Are they poking fun at him for his autism? Well, I don't think I don't even think that matters because he's they're coding him as autistic. I've just discovered Elon Musk is autistic. You had, you, you made you made that sound like. Newsflash. Psychocinematic exclusive. I got off the phone from Elon and he confirmed. <laughs> yes, yeah. What's the ASD, like, inter- like in- inventory? That, can you run through one? Like, oh, the ADOS. Um, you did an ADOS, quick ADOS with Musky. I did a quick Musky. ADOS. It takes three hours. No, um, whether it's making fun of him or not, the fact that they coded him autistic in those mannerisms and his behaviour... And I am I am assuming, but I think it's pretty obvious. It still is harmful p- for people with autism more so than it is for um, Elon Musk because Elon Musk doesn't give a shit. Let's be honest; he's still going to go on and live his life. But it it is making fun of autistic symptomology, and I don't like that. The more, yeah, I I mean I'm with you. I definitely see that. The more that I'm thinking about it, the more I think you know they're very specically satirizing Trump and mm. Fox News and hamming it up. Yeah. I think they're really just targeting Elon. I think they are. And I are, think it's unfortunate that they're targeting his autistic traits. Yeah. But also I think... I mean, know, they're he's targeting a, he's his big, selfishness as well. They're punching up, and I think that that's generally okay. They're punching up, but they could have done it in less of a neurodivergence pointing out way. Yeah. And then it makes me feel like they inadvertently... Do a little punch down as well. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're right. They but they probably could have targeted his, like, libertarianism and exploiting work. I'm sure they could Yeah, wouldn't they have done workers. a Jeff, Jeff Bezos more angle and yeah. been like, oh, and I don't know, maybe they did and I missed that bit, you know, we've mm. got warehouses with little... Um, I think they did. I think they did do something like that, unless okay. I'm just thinking about Nomadland. Well, just, just focus on that and forget about yeah. the other stuff, but you could be just thinking about Nomadland. Have we done all stereotypes? Yeah, I reckon. Cool. All right, Michael, do you think this movie was helpful? That is a difficult question. <laughs> it's like, uh, I, I think it's kind of, ni- it's neither to me. Mm. I think it's just like, it's just preaching to the choir, really. The people who watch this movie already agree with it mm. or they're watching it the way that my late grandfather watched Q&A just to piss himself off. Like, this is what those libtards think. <laughs> It didn't really convince anyone of anything, yeah. I think, is, is what we found, perhaps. Totally. 
at what point did they try to convince us of anything? Well, I think it was, you know, Adam McKay loves us loves satire. So it's a satire and it's satirising the reality of the situation. So in that way, it's a valid piece of film and, you know, we can watch it. But if he really wanted to convince someone of something, then it probably wasn't the best way to do it because he was poking fun at the right the whole way through. And so, of course, they didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Adam says in a tweet, in a twit, loving all the heated debate about our movie, but if you don't have at least a small ember of anxiety about the climate collapsing or the US teetering, I'm not sure Don't Look Up makes any sense. It's like a robot viewing a love story. And I'm just assuming this is how he wanted this to say. Why are their faces so close together? Um... (laughs) So yeah, yeah, so he exactly. knows. He knows. So what's the what's the point? It's not yeah, like an, it's no not like point. some essay film that really gets to the core of the issue that presents things that we haven't thought about before, presents ways of acting. It doesn't convince anybody who's not already fully on board. And, and this is one of the criticisms that I read um, in the New Yorker. I think that it, it just it just plays into the frivolity and the celebrity, yeah, yeah, distraction mach- military industrial fucking con complex like and the end kind of worked like people watch this movie being like oh i hear it's about like it's gonna make us mad about climate change so let's go watch it yeah let's see all these um you know this 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 jokey fun rot of a time yeah that's also gonna make us like dread what our future is like no one's gonna go oh i don't care about climate change but let me put this on like yeah i think it's like um you know like a, a good example of somebody who does polemic really well is like John Oliver mm. but he he the, the things that he does really well and the things that actually like affect real world change is when he picks like a micro topic yeah that no one really that no understands. one knows about no yeah. one cares about and he blows it up and it there's works. stuff you can do and it really works but like obviously Adam McKay is not gonna make a movie about gerrymandering or whatever the indian elections or something yeah Yeah. so yeah i just i I don't i don't think that i don't think that a movie about climate change is ever going to achieve anything no and um they i'll link it in the show notes there's a list it's nbcnews.com my my go-to um there's a list (laughs) of um documentaries that that really focus on climate change reality and they're probably better to watch yeah one of them is Waterworld, an inconvenient truth <laughs> um <laughs> but you know um it's probably they're probably gonna make the most impact but you gotta want to watch it to watch it so yeah. you're gonna want to be interested in it yeah exactly yeah in movie ranker they say with such a stacked cast it's a shame he didn't just like pick a lane whether it's a comedy or a drama it might have ended up being more profound as a straight up laugh right or a solemn drama like i kind of agree there's those movies where it's all very subtext and then it really gets you when you realize it this movie wouldn't have worked as a straight up drama I get it is just, me- melancholia is it, I haven't seen melancholia but is it a, a basically a drama a full drama version of this movie <laughs> It's such a different it was like it's the last one trio movie so like There's a lot take of that what you will clip snipping <laughs> Um it's a bit more arty so yeah. I wouldn't call it a straight up drama movie about um, the end of the world it's more a meditation on relationships and and mental illness and coping so, with the end of the world okay it's, yeah it's it's not the same so I'm movie wrong. I, I, but I, I see what I, you're saying i see what you're saying go on 
And I don't think you could do it as a straight-up comedy because it would scan like one of those right-wing propaganda movies. Also, isn't there already, already idiocracy? Yeah. But, like, I, I mean, uh, these, like, really angry but funny movies do work. Like, Dr. Strangelove yeah. is a pretty fantastic fucking movie. So they, they could have done that. I, I, I don't think you can criticise it for not picking a side. And I, and, but this is sort of a gripe that I have with movies in general at the moment where they do want to do everything. Was it not movies? Yeah, li- movies. <laughs> no, they, it's the kind of the Taika model, I think, of films. But we love Taika. Some of his movies are really good, but some of them are pretty shit. Like what? You didn't like Jojo Rabbit? Not really. Okay. P- precisely because it tried to do so much. It's like but this it movie made is... me cry. It's going to make you piss your pants laughing. It's going to make you angry about fascism. It's going to make you cry because the someone dies. Like, it just tries to cover off on everything. You know what? Scrub started it. It was Scrubs. <laughs> I'm sure it was lots of sitcoms before <laughs> yeah. then too. But, like, I mean, I think there is a case to be made about just, like, picking something. And, 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 and maybe this movie doesn't successfully navigate trying to be both. Mm-hmm. And... I don't know. Do you agree that movies are trying to do too much now? I, I see what you're saying and I think you're right. And I, I absolutely, actually, I completely agree, especially oh with God. like the Marvel universe and not that I watch many Marvel movies, but I feel like it's got so much like, you know, they're better written. Superhero movies are much better written than they were, I think, in our years of growing up. Because I challenge that- you to find a movie, a Marvel movie that tops Spider-Man 2. Okay, I haven't. Seen Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man. Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man. But, like, you know, look at Batman and Robin and Batman Forever. They were trash films. Like, bad written films, but they were entertaining. Now films have to be really well written. They have to have really good relationships and love stories. They have to have, to have amazing action and heightened effects. I don't actually like Marvel movies, so sorry. Um, we probably won't be covering them. I'm sorry. But now, you know, if a movie that's that you know is a bit more minimalist, it's kind of accused of being boring or um, just not having enough to entertain people, and um, it doesn't get as much traction. But maybe I'm overgeneralizing there and not basing this on any fact at all. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, <laughs> this is where I think it could be harmful. The Academy Awards have a history. Uh oh. <laughs> And, like, it's been nominated for Academy Awards. This is Steph's anti-parasite rant. Oh, there is no such thing. Those words, anti-parasite rant, have never been uttered till today because everyone loves Parasite. So the Academy Awards have a history of rewarding movies because it looks good, like it's virtue signalling, basically, um, without actually doing anything to commit to the cause that it's trying to care about. For example, Crash that absolutely trash film Mm. that won the best picture and it was like, racism is bad. A black person is trapped under a burning car and a white person person has to rescue them. them. What does it all mean? It was so in your face and it was very explicit racist, you know, examples without really dealing with it. And, you know... Launched Ludacris's acting career, though, I will say oh, good that on in his favour. And they, they've done that. Like, they reward a lot of movies about racism, like The Blind Side, 12 Years a Slave, Moonlight, Green Book. They were all best pictures. They were all featuring, you know, black lives and, tr- and the struggles of being black in America and 
and specifically racism, they still they still struggle to do anything with that. They don't often give black actors awards or even nominations. Um, they still it's still the white man that wins in the end. Sometimes the woman, and I just suspect that it'll be the same with this one. If it ends up winning awards, the Academy aren't going to do anything about that. I would be very shocked if it's if it wins. I would be too. I it's don't think it actually is good enough, enough to win. Yeah, no. Um, but that hasn't stopped other films winning yeah. that aren't that good. Yeah. Such as Crash. Yeah, I can't see them actually using their influence and power to actually do anything beyond being like, good on you, social issues, the end. I just saw a tweet from the head of the Academy Awards, the the Academy, the Academy of National Film and Television, whatever. They're, they're <laughs> National canc- Film they, and Television. They, they're cancelled. The Oscars have been cancelled this year because of what you just said. Yes. yes. See, <laughs> one person can make a difference. <laughs> if you if you don't if you don't think someone small can make a difference in in a big world, you just try going to sleep with the mosquito in your room. How are you feeling, Steph? After all I'm that? okay. I'm yeah. okay. Yeah, I'm surprised. Surprised myself. I've done all right. Has this been the first step in your desensitization? I've made many steps in my life towards desensitization. I forgot to mention to my psychologist today that I was doing this. That was good for my death <laughs> <laughs> anxiety. She'll be very proud of me. Do you think this movie, as a as a as a as a sufferer of um, death anxiety, climate anxiety, do you find this movie helpful for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> Probably makes it worse, right? It did. Yeah, it really it did. brought into focus. Yeah, I've had more the of comment those that's hurtling towards us. It, yeah, yeah. It doesn't help that everything got lit on fire and then everything got flooded and then. But you know, one thing I will say is the scene at the end where Leonardo says that line, which was improvised, by the way. The thing of it is, we really, we really did have everything, didn't we? I mean, if you think about it. And then, you know, they're all together at the dinner table and then they're all taken away by the impact of the comet. That was quite a poignant moment where, you know, all you can do when you have no choice is to be with your loved ones and make as much out of those moments you have, which is, I guess, a good lesson for me. Like, I can't do anything about the end of the world. I just have to treasure the time I have with the people that I love and try not to stress too much about it because that gets in the way of that. Yeah, and that, in the end, that's what they all had to do. So that was a good message. And I think for ev- me. every review that I read universally liked the final third of the movie because mm. it made it a little bit more human, and it made yeah. it a little bit more about the actual reality of struggling with impending death, like yeah. a literal expiry date. This is when we're going to die. Um, mm. And yeah, like I think when you are trying to deal with the the reality of death, it always just comes back to those cliches because they're true. And I feel like it says a lot about what people decided to do in those last moments, like what it means for the character. They're all the people trying trying desperately to get the word out there and they're accused of all sorts of things, but in the end of the day they just want to be with their loved ones. Yeah. And then you've got the president who just and Peter Isherwell who just get out of it and escape yeah. and use their, their privilege to do that. And then you've got – and also she doesn't take a son with her, which is like she's a very selfish person. She doesn't actually care. She and gets then, hers. She gets hers. And then right, right at the very end, her son, uh, played by Jonah Hill, is social me- <laughs> on social media documenting the end of the world. So, like, you know, what does that say about him? Yeah. Um, very superficial person. Yeah. And um, Professor Mindy or whatever, 
his arc is probably the, the the best thing about the movie in in some ways because you know he's a scientist he makes a discovery he but then he gets tied up in the whole media cycle he ends mm. up having an affair with the news presenter who's you know such a massive part of how the the message um, is, gets is bastardized yeah. um but then at the end takes steps towards getting back with his wife and being with his family and it's kind of like a you you we must tend our garden type message like yeah. you know and mate it's like you know the world's coming to an end let's just love each other like let's just love yeah. focus on our family like is that the message of the film let's not do anything about climate let's just make the most of our good have. relationships yeah. is that a helpful message probably not should, actually should is we, it? Do, is what, that... don't we owe the the pacific <laughs> islanders of the world some climate action yeah that's a good point michael that makes me feel worse now <laughs> <laughs> we haven't touched on too just as a last thought the f- use of faith in the film because the only person who's really religious is yule and then yeah and i thought that was like they had to I, wedge I that in somewhere they had i to wasn't sure if religion. they were taking the piss or if it was like legit well, Kate, he's, you know, Kate ends up dating him, I guess, and they, they get married, right, or engaged. And they pray, They say he has. He says a nice grace at the very yeah. end, doesn't he? Like she ends up getting into it a little bit towards the end. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, this is where why we believe in other stuff, why we, we, why we have religion to cope with the impending doom of the end of our world. Yeah. So I think it, I think it was done in a good way. I, and it was I'm like very the, uncomfortable with like genuine expressions of religious <laughs> religiosity yeah, in films. Um, but I think the fact that it was the least likely character to be into it, yeah. like she, you know, is he seems like a bit of a shoplifting derelict. Yeah, but he but he believes in God. Like I like how that was kind of it was a more genuine expression of religion rather than the president being like. Praise God. And, yeah, yeah, thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers, yeah. Final scores. Lived, Lived experience. experience. <laughs> yeah, we got to we got to give it a we point. We got to give it a point. Like I these people it... are all climate activists yeah. and whatever. Yeah. And um, which means they have to have climate anxiety to mm. be one. Mm. Uh, accuracy apparently accurate. Re-comments. Re-comments accurate. Re um, the anxiety, I yeah. believe. Yeah, okay. I well, all right. Cool. Two points. Fuck. Stereotypes. Well, it is one big stereotype, and I think it loses a point for Peter Ishwell's. Yeah, I agree. The Elon Musk trope. Yeah. I agree. I agree. But it is a movie of stereotypes, and that's kind of the point. Yeah. But yeah, the Peter. Uh, sorry, it, not not apologizing for the Peter Ishwell gets, stuff. I'm just saying that it gets separately. a whole point taken off for that. And helpful or harmful? Zero. zero neither. Yeah. Well, I want to finish on a quote just to make you all laugh. A Guardian columnist, George Monbiot. So as we race towards Earth system collapse, trying to raise the alarm feels like being trapped behind a thick plate of glass. People can see our mouths opening and closing, but they struggle to hear what we are saying. As we frantically bang the glass, we look ever crazier and feel it. The situation is genuinely maddening. I've been working on these issues since I was 22 and full of confidence and hope. I'm about to turn 59 and the confidence is turning to cold fear, the hope to horror. As manufactured indifference ensures that we remain unheard, it becomes ever harder to know how to hold it together. I cry most days now. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, that was poignant. Um, let me just break that mood with some levity that while I'm doing this, I'm currently got stickers with Meryl Streep in various foods. Um, mm. So thank you, Meryl. Um, and also, if you cry most days now, you've got depression. You should take an SSRI. <sighs> 
Well, George, I get you. I'm, I'm here for you, George. Thanks again for being on the podcast, Michael. You're this welcome. was a hoot, wasn't it? It was an absolute <laughs> hoot. I'm glad I came out here. Are you scared of climate change yet? I still feel quite paralysed. Okay. Well, you know what? That means you are scared. That's just how you manage it. That's true. But the most important thing is that we love each other. Let's spend our lives together. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. Follow us on Instagram if you want to follow my math stories and join our Patreon. We will have some bonus episodes for you, we promise. Sorry we dropped the ball on that a little bit. We've just been busy. Um, But we will get some new content for you very soon. Love you, everyone. Have a great dang day. Dang, dang, dong. (laughs) This podcast is not designed to be therapeutic, prescriptive, or constitute a formal diagnosis for any listener. For a longer version of this disclaimer, please check the episode notes on your podcast app.